from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 10, Ghidorah, the Three-Headed Monster. fans and kaiju lovers and welcome to kaiju vision radio a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value i'm brian scherschel and i'm nathan marchand and in this episode we will be covering the 1964 film Ghidorah, the three-headed monster which is a very important film in the godzilla franchise because it's a pivot point from here, things are going to change dramatically. Yes, the episode where everything changes. This will be really cool one. I really love this movie, and I love Ghidorah, so this will be a really good episode. I'm looking forward to it. The related topics for this episode are China going nuclear, Japan during the Vietnam War, and Japan joining the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. All right, with that, let's move on to part one of the podcast, which is a short description of the film. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is at first a force of nature. He destroys a cruise ship and comes ashore in Japan. However, when he fights Rodan, he becomes more anthropomorphic, laughing at the Pteranodon, among other behaviors. He makes his heel face turn when he charges heroically to save Mothra from Ghidorah and defend Earth. Rodan is initially a force of nature. He marauds through the skies and fights Godzilla for dominance. It's then he exhibits more human-like behaviors. While speaking with Mothra, he disregards the human's plight, preferring to squabble with Godzilla. In the end, he too becomes a hero. Mothra is summoned to Japan by the Shobajin to persuade Rodan and Godzilla to join her in fighting King Ghidorah. She is determined to protect Earth despite the overwhelming odds with or without their help. King Ghidorah crashes on Earth encased in a meteor. He attacks everything in sight as soon as he emerges from it. His only motivation is to destroy. Shindo is a police detective assigned to protect Princess Selina Salno, a ruler from Selgina. While normally poised and regal, she becomes an unemotional prophetess after being possessed by an extraterrestrial presence and seems to have no recollection of her human identity. She tries to warn humanity about Ghidorah so they can avoid being destroyed like her civilization. There are many James Bondian elements in the human plot. The interaction between the human and kaiju plots is moderate, increasing as the film progresses. The stories run parallel during the last third of the movie until the primary conflicts are resolved by the actions of the kaiju. Godzilla, Rodan, and King Ghidorah attack cities unopposed by the JSDF. There's debate in the Diet about what should be done to stop them, but the leaders never agree on a solution. Mothra fails to convince Godzilla and Rodan to join her in battling King Ghidorah, so she futilely tries to fight him alone. Godzilla and Rodan, inspired by Mothra's courage, come to her aid against Ghidorah. Their combined might and cleverness overwhelms the three-headed golden dragon, who is webbed by Mothra while riding Rodan and thrown down a cliff by Godzilla. Ghidorah then retreats back into space. As with any Sekizawa script, the story is relatively simple, although there is a subplot initially unrelated to the kaiju mixed in. Everything comes together at the end, though. The production value is solid. King Ghidorah is an incredible feat of design and engineering, brought to life with a combination of animation, suitmation, and puppetry. 
A new Rodan suit was created for this film, while the Godzilla suit from the previous movie was reused with minor alterations to the face and head. The climactic kaiju battle has the most elaborate choreography of any Godzilla film up to this point. This script is more serious than most of Sekizawa's scripts, but there is still humor, mostly in the monster scenes, to lighten the mood. There's a palpable, almost Lovecraftian dread and ominousness whenever Salno talks about Ghidorah's impending arrival. Though it does use some science fiction elements, overall the film is more fantasy than reality. The film builds on the crossover success of Mothra vs. Godzilla by adding Rodan to the mix, but it then veers into new territory by introducing extraterrestrials, space monsters, and a heroic Godzilla, all of which would become staples of the Showa series. Changing Godzilla was perhaps the boldest move out of all of them. The film is an expansion of style for the Godzilla series because it makes the kaiju much more like characters than forces of nature, with the obvious exception of Ghidorah and it makes Godzilla much more of a hero. This film drastically changed the characteristics of Godzilla and changed the way the audience perceives him. The film was rushed into production after the success of Mothra vs. Godzilla, and written as a direct sequel to that film. Toho intended to appeal to the burgeoning kaiju fandom by bringing several recognizable and bankable creatures together to fight an incredible new kaiju. When released in Japan in December 1964, it had an attendance of 4,220,000 and grossed 210 million yen. It earned 1.3 million when released stateside in September 1965 by the Walter Reed Organization. It is well respected by the fan base. The dub version of the film is about 8 minutes shorter. Several scenes were trimmed or rearranged, which caused continuity errors such as Godzilla switching between being in water and out of water when he appears in Yokohama. These changes were made to quicken the film's pacing. A few details were changed in the dub, such as Sano saying she is from Mars and not Venus, Mothra being referred to as a male, and King Ghidra being called Ghidra, presumably because it sounded more like Hydra. Also, most of Akira Afukabe's score was replaced with music from American films. The film shifts focus away from the military to showcase a Japanese police department. A meeting in the diet is shown for the first time since Gojira. Intrigue abounds as foreign agents infiltrate Japan in search of their target. Questions are asked about identity and mental illness in regards to Sano's claims of being an alien prophetess. Honda's trademark Brotherhood of Man theme is expressed in the defense minister's admonition that Ghidorah is a problem not only for Japan but the whole world. This theme is also seen in the alliance of Earth's kaiju against Ghidorah. The film expresses some anti-nuclear sentiment when the defense minister asks if nuclear weapons should be used on the monsters, which silences his fellow delegates. The film presents the then fairly new idea of ancient aliens coming to Earth, where they mingled with humans. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is our opinion and discussion section of the film. So... Brian, I think we've made it no secret that we both love this movie. Yeah, I love it. It's really a special one. Really big, really big deal. The weird thing is, is this wasn't the first movie to feature Ghidorah that I saw. I think it might have. It was either Geigen or Monster Zero first for me. I'm pretty sure because I don't think I got to this one until a little bit later. For me, it was definitely Geigen because I was like really pretty young at that point. I think I thought that this movie and the movie after it were like the same movie or something. I see. You know, have... like Gator is in the next one too. And I, I can't remember which one between this one and the one after this, 
I saw first. I seem to have vague recollections of having a similar experience. Maybe it's because I saw Monster Zero first, thinking it was the first appearance of Ghidorah, yeah. but they're talking of, about Ghidorah as if they'd seen him before, so I was confused. I do happen to have around here somewhere a VHS version of that of this movie where where it's called Ghidra the three-headed monster. Oh yeah, it's it uses the, really the yeah, it uses but... the original Americanized title. Mm-hmm. Which kind of cracks me up. I, I the funny thing is when I read that I kept thinking so in the Showa Godzilla universe the catchphrase would be Hail Ghidra? Yeah. <laughs> 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 How hilarious would that be? <laughs> I'm just going to take this time to state the obvious. Ghidorah is possibly the greatest kaiju ever, except for maybe Gojira himself, perhaps. The costume style that he appears in the Showa series, that's the, my favorite the way that he looks in the whole of the Godzilla series. And the whole world of kaiju just would not be the same without King of Ghidorah. He's my favorite, I think. And I think it's not only the three-headedness that makes him look so cool, but also the gravity beams and just the huge amount of destruction that he's capable of. And then there's the additional twist, starting with the film after this, that involves him being controlled by this wide assortment over time of evil entities and people, invaders and all kinds of other stuff. It's kind of, he's kind of like a mindless tool of doomsday-level destruction, and I think the fans respect the power. I know I do. If some nightmare situation happened and, and Ghidorah suddenly existed in real life, I would be pretty scared. <laughs> Ghidorah is considered by most everybody in the fandom to be Godzilla's arch nemesis. He is to Godzilla what the Joker is to Batman or Lex Luthor is to Superman. He's the you know the most frequent villain that we see. He's the one that the that plagues Godzilla the most often and as you pointed out it's it's no wonder why it's a brilliant design it's based off of the the Orochi myth in Japanese folklore which was an eight-headed dragon not three I guess they had to scale back a little bit the eight heads was probably a little much that'd be a heck of a costume yeah although Toho did make a movie about Orochi in the in the 90s if I remember correctly not seen that movie yet though but Anyway, so I can understand that. And it's interesting to note with this, we've been saying that this film is a pivot point. A lot of fans like to talk about how the the 70, one of the characteristics of the 70s Godzilla movies is Godzilla's opponents got more fantastical compared to what they were in the 50s and 60s, where they say it was mostly, you know, giant dinosaurs or, or glorified animals. And it was the 70s where they got nuts. I'm like, did you forget about Ghidorah? You know, Ghidorah is pretty fantastical if you really stop and think about it. He's essentially a three-headed space dragon. I mean, you don't get much more fantastical than that. Yeah, the space monster. This is where that comes in. And I think, uh, actually, before this movie was Dogura. Yeah, I mean... So this... that was the first space monster. You know, that's funny. Well, and kind of... Um... The release date of Dogra is before this. Yeah. Same year. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I guess I guess Dogra is the first uh, space monster. Well, what does but... does Mogira from the Mysterians count? Uh, Mogira is a robot, uh, but yeah, a robot made by aliens. Yeah. Sort of I don't know. I don't know if I'd count it as a space monster. He's certainly the first space monster in the Godzilla series. Mm. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. 
And one of the things that I think is really interesting is the film's presentation of Ghidorah in this. Because the opening credits, you actually, they kind of skip ahead to the end a little bit because they give you these quick little clips of the final battle, but you never see Ghidorah. I'm sure the posters and everything had him plastered all over the place, but there's a lot of mystery associated with Ghidorah. So you never see him at the beginning. Then there's all this talk about them when Salno starts to talk about him. And then all the stuff with the meteor, it's very strange. We don't know what exactly is going on because it has random magnetism and it's growing. And then when you finally get to the moment when Ghidorah shows up, it is just spectacular you know the the meteor is glowing and rumbling and it ruptures and then this fireball just erupts right out of it and then coalesces into Ghidorah it's fantastic (laughs) yeah seriously the movie takes off at like 54 minutes in and then the footage of Ghidorah's attack on Tokyo which I think it starts like exactly one hour into the Japanese version it's one of the absolute most memorable sequences in all of the whole Godzilla series is that. I mean, I don't mean because it's used as, as you know, quote unquote stock footage later. That's not the point. But it, like it, the actual stuff that's happening is amazing to look at. And like how the debris is like flying through the air and everything, too, as uh, the gravity beams are just destroying all this stuff so fast. Well, and the other thing... It's it's incredible to look at, though. Yeah, and the other thing that really got to me is, I I don't remember feeling this way in my previous viewings before I rewatched it for the podcast. Maybe it was because I was really getting into all of the build-up stuff, because we'll talk about that a little bit later. But there was this incredible sense of just dread and just utter helplessness when you're when you're seeing Ghidorah attack Tokyo, and it's because it's so violent and fast. I mean, it's not that we haven't seen cities destroyed in the previous movies. It's just that this one just seems just that much more intense compared to the others. The destruction is just so fast that you know it, it sort of brings almost a different scale, and especially with being able to fly too. That's that's even more. You know, the destruction can go anywhere at once. But it takes almost 39 minutes for Godzilla to appear. And I'm okay with that. Some might not be. You know, it's the way movies are now, how it's like instantly action a lot of times. And we get to see everything at the beginning. But, the, but I'm okay with that. But Ghidorah isn't even mentioned by name until 50 minutes into the film. Really? I didn't time st- I didn't time Salno st- mentions it to uh, 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 Takashi Shimura. Oh, uh, the the psychiatrist. Uh huh. Yeah, I didn't timestamp when he when his name was dropped. I timestamped when he actually appeared. I didn't realize that. That's that's really interesting. It took fifty minutes. Hmm. And but then it's it's really memorable though. I mean, she's she's there and she's like King of Ghidorah, and and then they look at her like, wait, what? Uh oh, that sounds really really bad. Yeah, and then the the way she tells the story. I was finding myself being more affected by that than I can remember in my previous viewings. It, it Ghidorah, especially, I mean, he has a presence throughout the entire movie because of the meteorite and all the weird stuff going on with the meteorite. But there's this almost Lovecraftian dread associated with Ghidorah the entire time because of all the weird stuff that's going on. And then the way Salno tells the story of the Venus thing, yeah. yeah, or Mars, depending on which one you want to, uh, on which version of it you're looking at. But you know, Ghidorah coming to her planet and ravaging it, and them being just 
powerless to stop him. And it gives this impression that Ghidorah is just this ancient force that just jumps from planet to planet. And whenever it lands someplace, it kind of rebirths itself and then destroys everything around it and then moves on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's terrifying, really, if you stop and think about it. You know, it's kind of weird. It's almost like Chrono Trigger with Lavos. <laughs> wow. Anyway, for those of you that don't even know what that is, it's a video game from the Super Nintendo era. Yeah, I'm really old. But <laughs> that, yeah, I agree with everything that you said with this. I mean, the, the destruction is so intense and it's so it can go anywhere, you know, it can go planet to planet and go, go all over the planet destroying stuff. It's a uh, Gojira is definitely not as mobile as Ghidorah is. No. As, or fast, it can't fly, you know. But And so it gives the destruction like a more, um, a much wider range. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that if if I was charged with, you know, say, writing a script that was intended to modernize Ghidorah, I would actually up the ante on the Lovecraftian sort of elements. I would make it, take it even a step further with that, you know, because let's be honest, the origins they give for Ghidorah later get a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, this seems like the cleanest way to introduce Ghidorah, and it's. I think the the story does a good job at at, at giving us the dread. It definitely could have done more. And now, if you do a remake of like a straight remake of this, you could really go all out, and especially with the design of it too, you could probably make it seem even more realistic. And oh yeah, frightening. I would say. Also, take into the fact that just from a story st- uh, storytelling standpoint. The odds are really not in the favor of our heroes. It takes three monsters to defeat Ghidorah, and he's minimum twice their size. Because I think he's supposed to be 100 meters tall, and Godzilla and Rodan are about 50 meters tall. So they're outsized, and they're outmatched, because it takes all three of them to defeat him. I mean, that should tell you how powerful of a threat they're facing right here. And it not only does it make Ghidorah more imposing it also makes the movie feel bigger i mean if you look at this in the in the context of watching these films in sequence it makes the movie feel bigger oh i agree it absolutely does and and like the i think they build Ghidorah as as such a big big spectacle you know that that's that's what the the whole purpose for seeing the movie was which is a testament i think to the creative team that worked on this because they put this movie together in eight months this could have been just another quick cash grab sequel like raids again and instead it turns into this seminal pivotal movie in the franchise that and and this was the third kaiju film that toho released in just the same year they released mothra versus godzilla and then dogara in the same year and so like this was when the the studio was just really running at like peak efficiency where they just could, could and I think I know at least two of those three movies were made concurrently, like they were filming, you know, at the same time for both of them. I think it was probably Dogra and Ghidorah. I think it was Dogra and Ghidorah, yeah. And so they they would they film a scene one place and they get a lot of the same actors and they go to a, to another place and and film for the other one. So it's like there was the studio was really working at very efficiently and and really high production values. Besides Ghidorah, though, there's a big thing in this movie about just how groundbreaking this change that we notice is. And that's kind of why in the introduction, you know, when I talked about how really the show series has two parts to it, 
you can find this line right here with this movie. It, this is the this is the border area where we jump into a and find a completely different kind of Gojira. I can't imagine every movie being dead serious as the first one. I think after a while it would just become old hat and I don't know if if anything else would have really come out of it. I think probably it just would have gotten boring, which that's not something you want to do. Or it's like a person who can't laugh at themselves. You got to be able to do that, especially if you're going to have a series last 10 plus years like this is now because this is the 10th anniversary. At the time that this movie was made and that the decisions were made to to go the more anthropomorphic direction, I don't know if in that decision process if I would have been on the side of actually doing this. Really? I think I would have been apprehensive and probably w- could have said, oh, well, you know, this is really risky. Oh, well, you know, if we go this direction... How are we going to be able to come back from it? Are you talking about going more? Ma- yeah, well, okay, and yeah. making the actual shift because this technically isn't the first time we've seen Godzilla be anthropomorphic. We saw instances of it in King Kong versus Godzilla, so mm. it's not coming out of total left field. Uh, not entirely, but and really, there's way more anthropomorphic behavior. In, in this, though. Well, I'm certainly not arguing. I, I sure, certainly wouldn't disagree with that. I'm just saying that it's... This was where the decision was actually made, though, I think. Yes, where, I definitely agree with you. Where they decided to say, okay, now we're going to evolve Godzilla as a character. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's also where he turned into a hero. I mean, this is the first time he, he genuinely becomes a hero. Is it possible that... Ghidorah showing up as the arch villain and Godzilla shedding that role as the villain is I don't think it's a coincidence that these two things happen in the same movie. It's almost like we're separating that part you know the, the creature part of Godzilla out and turning it into something else to have as an enemy. And then Godzilla actually fights that enemy. So what do you think was the trigger that you know that brought that on in the film because we had Mothra trying desperately to appeal to both Godzilla and Rodan to say you need to stop Ghidorah Ghidorah is going to destroy the earth and the earth is where you keep your stuff pretty much you need to help me and they say and they say no and then it takes Mothra getting the snot kicked out of her before you see Godzilla make that heroic charge. That was the moment. So what brought this on? I kind of wonder if it was Mothra's actions that finally did that. I mean, talk was one thing. But then to see this this lowly caterpillar, completely outmatched, just say, fine, I'm going to do it myself, and go up against Ghidorah, I feel like that had to have played a part in it. Because it, it looked like it had an effect when Mothra said, I'm going to go do this. Both Godzilla and Rodan are like, really? Yeah. You're going to do this. You. <laughs> Maybe if you were an adult, you might stand a chance. But right now? Wow. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, Mothra getting beaten, I think, demonstrated just how big the threat was. And then the, I think, I think Godzilla reacted to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's the reason why 
he made that final total pivot towards becoming a hero. But I think what brought that on as a concept is, I think, more interesting, though. Because you, you finally get to have this totally different concept of Godzilla taking place. And this is what really stays as the case for the rest of the show series. Because Godzilla doesn't show up as the enemy anymore in any of these, the rest of these. No, he's sometimes perceived as such, because I, I get the feeling that it still took a lot of people time to think of Godzilla differently, as we'll see. It's actually, this presentation of Godzilla is one that it, that's commonly believed by a lot of people who aren't necessarily part of the fandom you know they do associate godzilla as this defender of japan if they don't automatically go to the destructive monster it's this version that they think of yeah and this version is something you almost have to create if you're going to create like a, a pop culture phenomenon that is godzilla i mean if, if this part of this you know if this pivot was not there it godzilla would be way more one-dimensional I think, and it would be too simple. And, and with this, it's like a, I'm not sure exactly how much of a risk, so to speak, they took in going this route. I think that it was the right thing to do. And I, I'm on record as saying that I like a lot of these films that are more humorous, especially during the Showa series. But I don't know if at the time I would have gone with it. You know, because it is a very, very big departure from where we were before. But I think I, if somebody told me and sat me down and said, well, look, here's what's going to happen with the whole Godzilla thing as a brand, so to speak, down the line. And if we just keep doing the same thing over and over again, less audience, no matter what, and then Godzilla just ends up becoming irrelevant. And so I just say, well, I'd rather have this evolution take place than have Godzilla just become irrelevant. I would agree with you there. I'm honestly not sure how I would have reacted to this in real time because I came into these knowing about, at least in some form, about these two different presentations of Godzilla. So it wasn't as shocking. I was actually more interested in seeing the film because I wanted to see the moment when things changed. If you, Since we're watching these movies chronologically, at least as, as we're doing this podcast, it is a really big change that happens. You know, the, the, the monsters are talking to each other and they're, they have all these facial expressions too. And they, they do have a lot of human kind of emotions that they are giving off. I just want to make sure I note on here. When we say the monsters are talking to each other, they're not speaking English or anything. They're not speaking in human languages. They're grunting and growling and yeah, such to each monster other speak yeah so, monster yeah. speak and i bring that up because there's actually a <laughs> this very humorous addition that's made in the dub version it's not in the japanese <laughs> where the the fairies make a because they're translating for the human character so they know what the monsters are saying to each other and they have this line where they they say oh godzilla what language Oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and I'm yeah. just like, what? It's not in the Japanese, but it's this kind of, it's this really funny joke. So, like, so apparently, unbeknownst to all of us, Godzilla swears like a sailor. Yeah. <laughs> From what we've read, aren't Tsuburaya and uh, Sekizawa the ones that went this direction? 
where they made Godzilla less serious. And then I think it was like uh, Takeshi Kimura and Ishiro Honda that were a little bit more cautious. I think that is certainly the case. I know Subaraya in particular uh, said that, and then Hiro Nakajima as well, when he because uh, he's the, the suit actor for Godzilla for most of the Showa series. And when he was asked about which of the movies he enjoyed making the most, and he actually, Hiro Nakajima said that he really enjoyed making the the more kid-friendly movies the most. And I, Subaraya, I think, was always a bit more of a lighthearted sort of a guy. So taking Godzilla this direction, I think it would is probably something he would have been behind. Sekazawa, most definitely. I think he would have no problem doing this. Honda was more cautious, though. But he was a good company man, and when he was given a project to work on, he went with it and made as good of a movie as he could. Yeah, and, and Honda's, be, Honda's been quoted as saying, you know, yes, the Godzilla movies need to be enjoyable. So, I mean, that's what we're going towards here, is making the movies more enjoyable. But then we're also, sort of like we were talking before about how this series changes over time. This is one of those movies where we, we get a skin or like a, like a, it's like a person wearing different costumes or outfits, you know, like this time around it's the bond movie. So it's a very James Bondish sort of stuff going on. And then in the next one, it has like a whole lot of sci-fi sort of, uh, things thrown into it even mm-hmm. though it's not really a sci-fi film but it's it has a lot of sci-fi in it and then after that it's like a, a young person sort of romp ish yeah romp kind of adventure sort of and movie. then after that yeah. we get a kid's thing and so so like but it's like a different it's like an entertainer wearing different kinds of outfits and saying okay here's you know this kind of a godzilla movie and there's mm-hmm. that kind of a godzilla movie as opposed to having particularly just thematic elements like Mothra and King Kong versus Godzilla and even Mothra versus Godzilla, those have more thematic things in them about like corporate exploitation mm. or, or uh, those kinds of topics. And this one, we don't really have that. And instead it's like, okay, this is a bond. We're going to do a bond thing now. Well, it's, it's kind of one part bond. The human plot line is most definitely a, a very James Bondian, but it's, the monster stuff is kind of kind of like a weird paranormal sort of a film. I was noticing, noticing that because there's these very you get these two very different sorts of stories when you look at the two plot lines that are kind of running through this. You know, it's not a full blown sort of science fiction thing like what we what we'll be closer to with uh, with the next film. But there's a lot of strange things going on, almost. I don't want to say Twilight Zone-ish, but that sort of a that sort of paranormal so, uh, story. Yeah, like having it really hot in winter, kind of weirdness. Yeah, um, like there's a like the movie opens with this guy who's supposed to be the president of a UFO club. I'm not exactly sure what that's supposed to mean, but whenever he's talking, I kept finding myself thinking this sounds like the sort of stuff that you would see on those weird late night radio shows that I catch sometimes, you know, like, like coast to coast AM and ground zero where they're talking about paranormal things and conspiracy theories and all these, you know, these fringe, strange ideas. You know, that's what I felt like I was getting when I was watching this movie, particularly with those scenes and the telepathy 
that the Shobijin, uh display to... Yeah, actually, I was really finding myself wanting Salno the alien to have more scenes with the Shobajin. I would, I whenever they were together, I was really excited because like you have these two weird paranormal sorts of characters who are together, and the Shobajin don't quite understand what Salno is because they can't tell the future. They're telepathic, but they can't tell the future, and you know all of these things. So they're even baffled by her. So it's, I was just like, I don't know. I was just really excited, and I kind of wanted them to have more scenes together. Well, the, they are definitely perplexed or unnerved by princess Salno, the Venusian because, and like they have these looks, you know, frequently they're like, I don't know, three or four times where we see the, the twin fairies and they're like, what is going on with her? You know, and people think we're weird. (laughs) You know, we did not know what to make of this woman. And like, they're getting on that ship, and then she shows up, and and they're like, oh boy, and everybody else is like, oh boy, Venusian's here. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting how the, there's like a more weirdness, the weirdness factor kind of went up with with these kinds of topics, but they're very appropriate for the time that they were made or that the film was made because these topics were in uh, were showing up in films, so it's kind of a and like people were getting interested more and. Like ancient astronauts, yeah, and ancient astronauts and things like that. Because there's some element of the ancient astronaut thing in this as well, because Sano tells the story about how her people, the survivors, escaped Ghidorah and then came to Earth and then mingled with with the humans. So I guess the idea is that there's a little bit of their DNA kind of mixed in with everybody, because the implication is that you know their precognitive abilities were passed on, but they're kind of buried in the genetics. So the implication being that when this extraterrestrial presence came onto Salno, it tapped into those abilities that were in her, but she had no no way of using them. Yeah, that's true. It's it. I, I like the story though. I mean, it's a it's a nice sort of story. I don't care whether it's Venus or Mars, but I mean, you can have, sure, like in planets that we find and are still finding, you know, who knows if there has been a society that survived there millions or billions even years ago that died, you know, at some point, or maybe, you know, the society ran out of resources on that planet and went somewhere else even, you know, who knows? But but the idea of, oh, you know, what was Venus like way, 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 way before now? And it's like, well, sure, you know, who knows? And I think the implication we can infer from this is that Venus is the way it is. It's as hostile and inhospitable as it is because of Ghidorah. Right, yeah. And although that's personally why I actually have to give props to the dub version Maybe it's just because I'm, uh, you know, I'm an American and I've, you know, partaken of too much Western science fiction. But I actually like the Mars theory, the Mars idea actually more than Venus because Mars makes more sense to me, especially since there's this longstanding tradition of there once being a civilization on Mars and Mars has a greater chance of having a civilization on it at one point. And the idea being that, you know, that Mars is barren now because of Ghidorah. 
mm. makes total sense to me because Venus has a very hostile environment. It's very gaseous and acidic, and mm. you know it's much less likely that there could have been life on that planet. Mm-hmm. Going back to the beginning of this movie, it's just funny. The, <laughs> she show you know she shows up as the reporter, and they're instantly like. Oh well, I think someone has been here that's lowered our, you know, possibility of finding Oh, we have a non-believer in our midst yeah, scaring the aliens away. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> but she shows up to this thing at night and they're all watching the stars and then she interrupts everything with her skepticism and her brain waves and all this stuff and I thought that's just great. I like how the camera does this zoom in thing right where she says she's from Venus. Did you catch that? Yes, it, I did. It was kind of like dun dun dun, you know. And I, I thought that was kind of cool. There, there, we'll be seeing a little bit more with I think camera effects later on in the show series. We haven't really had a, a lot of that yet, but uh, they kind of get more artsy with the with the camera over time to just sort of involve the audience and help us help us through the film. I think if somebody showed up today and said they were Venusian and that they started uh, predicting all this stuff, she'd probably become like a YouTube sensation overnight. (laughs) But meanwhile, the fairies of Infant Island, they would by this time have already gotten like a show on HBO or something like they'd be way higher up in the food chain. And see, and that's the uh, that's one interesting. Actually, I have two quick bullet points I wanted to make about this. But notice the huge shift in the the fairies attitude now they're there's something of celebrities they're yeah, they're, will, they're willingly going on Japanese television not under duress this not time. under duress they're not being forced to perform so they've kind of they're embracing this level of celebrity that they've been given and which is totally different from you know what we saw three years before in mothra it's it's an interesting shift. I kind of almost makes me wonder why that happened and when it happened and all of that. But uh, and also, it's I think it's interesting to note that you know what what did they use as the the setup to bring them on? These two kids showing up saying we want to see Mothra. Well, we can't give you Mothra, but we can give you the fairies. I wonder if that might have been a little bit of an acknowledgement to the changing demographics of the audience you know there were more kids seeing the, this now oh, so that's kind sure. of like a mild acknowledgement of that yeah, makes but sense. but it's interesting that you bring up you know that if salna was around now she'd become this youtube sensation there was a, a series of novels godzilla novels published by random house written by a guy named mark saracini they were young adult novels and in one of them they had a a, a plot a, a plot element that was similar to this there was this teenage girl who supposedly could tell the future she was foretelling all of these kaiju things coming and she had a show on mtv you remember this was in the mid to late 90s when this was happening it was before youtube so she had this show on mtv where she's making all these predictions and she became this hugely popular celebrity because of it yeah and meanwhile like like i said the fairies would probably have like a syndicated show on television you know they'd be way up in the big leagues because of their presence and their you know everything but then you know the princess Salno showing up as an alien that's why one reason why it throws them off so much they're like wait a minute what's going on with her i guess two other milestones that that we have in this movie is this is the last movie that uh or at least the last godzilla movie that uh takashi shimura is in and so that's it is yeah so that's kind of Aww. sad this is the last appearance but then also we had the last appearance of the uh, the ito 
uh, sisters who play the Shobajin. Yeah, they don't come back. Yeah, you know, the the uh, Shobajin come back for one more movie. Well, but they do, but that's not, not the not the Ito sisters. No, it's not the it's not the Peanuts. No, which is tragic because they're wonderful. Another thing with uh, actors and actresses while we're on that is Akiko Wakabayashi. I mean, she's amazing, and she's she's the one who plays uh, Princess Salno slash Venusian or Martian or whichever version of this you're watching. But she is like she was in she's in this sort of bondish movie, and then only three years later, she's in You Only Live Twice as like the Bond. She's girl. the Bond girl, and like. It's funny in this movie that she's dressed in all these mostly pretty frumpy outfits and everything. She yeah. and like she's wearing that like what is it supposed to be the fisherman's clothes? Or yeah, what? it was the like, fisherman's clothes. They and traded and there's clothes a, when she landed. Yeah, there's a joke at one point early on where the guy where the guys are like, "Are you a are you really a girl?" But yeah, the, the, she's wearing these all these frumpy things, even though she's like clearly objectively hot. Yeah, know? well, I mean, even when she's wearing all of her princess garbs, it looks all very formal and all like borderline gaudy almost because the, the, yeah. the, the costuming they have for the characters from her home country look kind of ridiculous the little anyway. things around their necks uh, yeah, like, like yeah. this is stereotypically European well, <laughs> I, I don't think it's supposed to be European I think it's supposed to be I've, I'm not exactly sure what country Seljana is supposed to be but for some reason I think it's Nepal or someplace oh, in the Himalayas yeah, but anyway given the look of the guards and everything when that guy was sitting in that wicker thrown at his desk yeah but anyway so she looks kind of frumpy in this but then you watch you only live twice and you're just knocked out my gosh she is a beautiful beautiful woman and she's still around going back to the peanuts a little bit here they want they once again get to sing in this movie and they get a brand new song it's it's good though it's certainly not nearly as memorable as mothra song but the thing i find interesting about this is while in some of these previous movies, I've been joking that it seemed like Ashiro Honda had this secret desire to make a musical because they look like these big, lavish musical numbers. Whereas in this one, it's more subdued, which fits the song. And it feels like a kind of like a weird 60s trippy music video almost, which was something that was being experimented in by a lot of music artists at the time both in japan and america and britain you know like that this is about the time when the beatles were trying you know starting to make some of their you know their movies and all of that all of these things that became precursors to what we would call music videos in the 80s and 90s yeah it's kind of like an early 60s music video sort of thing We've talked before about with uh, with the Showa era that it has a continuity, but it's a loose continuity, and they only really pay attention to it when they have to. They might make these small or subtle nods to previous movies, but this one is probably the most direct references to previous movies that we're going to see really for about the next ten years in the Showa series. Because in this one, it's really testing the audience's knowledge of previous kaiju movies. You got to remember this is way before home media so it's not like everyone could just re-watch these movies right before the new one came out so you have references being made to mothra versus godzilla with them talking about the two mothra larvae and then but one of them died between the movies and then and mothra fighting godzilla and then you have them referencing not just a godzilla but referencing the original rodan which was from eight years before this because they're talking about rodan being in mount asso 
although they have to retcon that a little bit because it looks pretty obvious that the two Rodan creatures fall into lava and burn up. But in this one, we find out that one of them survived and was just trapped inside of the volcano, which is a little bit odd, but I'll just I'll go with it. I've seen worse retcons. That's the thing with continuity in the Godzilla series, though. They're thankfully not that just fixated on all every every little detail of all the previous movies thank goodness because oh. i think after a while it would have been like oh no you know like there's there's a danger of being like oh well as you might remember in the last episode of godzilla you know or like if they had, previously or, on godzilla yeah or if they had like numbered these movies which oh my gosh that would have been tedious it's like oh no you have to see godzilla 5 before you can see godzilla 6 you know it's like uh no please god don't do that well, uh, but uh, but anyway. Well, also going back to to that scene at Madaso when uh, when Rodan shows up, I don't remember that actor's name. He was previously in King Kong versus Godzilla. He had a small part in that. He's a very funny sort of guy, and in this one, he's gets he talks a citizen who you know his hat had been blown by the wind into the volcano, and it's like, oh, I want to, I need to get it back. He said, well, give pay me money, and I'll go down and get it for you. And then he barely escapes before Rodan pops out of the out of the volcano. I have been trying to figure out for a long time who he reminded me of. For the longest time, I've been trying to, like he reminds me of somebody I couldn't figure out. And then I finally figured it out watching this movie. He's like a Japanese Don Knotts. I could swear that guy was in uh, Destroy All Monsters too. Oh, he was. Yeah, like I'll, in I'll that watch little Warren. funny part like where they have in the English version, they have that one voice that they do that kind of sounds like, you know, I'm talking. Yeah. I think it might be him too, but either way that this guy, I've seen him in other movies too. I pretty good character. Yeah, He looks kind of like Don Knotts even has a voice like Don Knotts. I mean, just like, I mean, you watch him in any scene and then watch a clip of Don Knotts as Barney five. And they're very similar. Even their kind of style of comedy is a little bit, similar to so i'm glad i finally figured that out also kind of you know going you know talking about comedy and rodan there are points where i wrote in my notes watching this movie it's like rodan looks like a muppet especially in some of these close-up scenes where, you, where they're obviously using you know a hand puppet to get the expression and everything that they need so that that cracked me up a bit and also it looks to me like a large part of this movie particularly the the first third was filmed on location because there's no way they could have recreated that scenery nearly as well if they were on a set, even with the best sort of matte paintings. So, but that was real. They filmed that on location, and I think it makes the movie look ten times better because they did that. It's gorgeous scenery. Yeah, and like the the last part of the movie where they the they have to escape the town that's being destroyed you know in the process of this kaiju battle and it shows them walking up the mountain trails shows them you know moving around in this area and you can tell that it's obviously on location um it does look really good but i mean this goes back to these movies look a lot better just because of toho scope alone we get to see nice wide shots of crowds of people and everything reacting to this and the 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 extras that react to all this stuff they're really good i mean they were probably maybe paid a little bit like you know the way extras were paid in the good old days of movies but uh 
it they when their town is being destroyed and stuff they are like emoting and and they're and just, it looks like they're actually being serious about it yeah. as opposed to just you know some of these other movies later where it's like okay everybody we're filming run away from nothing and they yeah. and, and like you see a couple people you know they have to re they have to do reshoot you know if they see people smiling as as they're running away from supposedly horrifying you know uh kaiju and stuff but th- this time around they, they looked really good and actually i thought that added some some great gravitas i mean it almost it added a little bit of bittersweetness actually to the end because the earth kaiju win Ghidorah is sent running you know proverbially with both of his tails between his legs but then everyone is saying but our village is destroyed yeah and that actually means a little something yeah <laughs> this time around yeah some of the other just funny things that I thought happened in this movie, and, and part of it's the, the Sekizawa touch, but but like that part where uh, Takarada hits that guy over the head with the wrench, and he actually reacts to it pretty seriously. Yes, and he it's does. like, well, yeah, it's I mean, weirdly it, realistic. It's not like you know how in movie land you you hit somebody over the head and they just go, yeah, they just, know, just, they go just down. pass out. Yeah. This guy's like, oh, it hurts. I, I thought that was a nice little touch, but then also um, the, the 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 you already mentioned it a little bit, but the thing that I absolutely love is this director of the UFO Club. <laughs> I, that, I love this guy. That <laughs> tiny little scene. The director of the UFO Club said this, and they actually tra- we're transported to this guy's office with the UFO models in it from uh, Battle in Outer Space, and he and he's there, and uh, he says that wonderful line. You know, you may not know this, but and that is fantastic. <laughs> That's absolutely fantastic. And then he says, "There's another dimension, and she uh, that isn't." our dimension and she <laughs> fell between that dimension and ours and, and he says that and then boom the guy's gone and we come right back and it's like that is perfect movie science it's almost right there. it's not even well it's not even trying to be science you know it's, it's like just well in case you didn't know this is why that happened and we're, that's all we're giving you. it's almost like those goofy cutaway scenes that family guy likes to do you know uh-huh. <laughs> although I have to say, and this is why I say he, that's why it's like, this guy's so coast to coast AM. I mean, seriously, this guy needs a radio show. But actually, you ever stop and think that, you know, the guy's kind of being presented as being a little bit of a, a crackpot, even though we're dealing with real aliens here, or at least disembodied aliens, which really is not only the first time we have aliens in these movies, it's the only time that aliens are benevolent in any sort of sense. Yeah. It does actually, within the context of the movie, it makes sense. Because we, we have all this other stuff going on that's, that's really similar. But it, it all just mixes together really well, actually. Consider, considering, I mean, you can't just do a little scene like that for any movie. You know, you can't just be like, oh, yeah, this one guy said that, though. And you go, you know, go to this guy for 30 seconds and we're like, oh, of course. You know, you, you, that's not going to, like, so many movie viewers now, especially, they, they wouldn't be able to handle a scene like this talking about different dimensions and stuff and then popping back out you know they'd be like oh well that's you know probably get complaints but i think this this actually does work really well have you ever had a blue mountain hawaiian no but i really want one now i can make you one i have the ingredients here they're very good but i'm i'm partial to uh rum kind of drinks myself anyway but they're uh they're very good 
Yeah, I'll have to make you one. They're very tasty. One of the funniest things that I've found in, in this movie, at least when I rewatch it, is, is that part when it's about an hour and 17 minutes into the Japanese version. And Ghidorah lands on the ground and it looks like there's like a, it looks like a shrine, uh, like a Shinto shrine that he lands like either behind or mm-hmm. you know, really close to. And then there's this small crowd of people there when he lands. I don't know what they're saying or anything, but they're all like, oh, you know, and then. Oh, I know what you're talking then, about yeah, now. And then he uh, starts blowing the hell out of everything. And they're like, oh, my God. And they just <laughs> run away. And I thought that was hilarious. He's like, oh, how cute. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, oh. Run. Our God has come down finally. Oh crap! <laughs> like, oh, it's so nice looking. It's so stately. Uh oh. It spits lightning. Yeah. The the climactic monster battle in this is quite epic. We we've talked before about you know the kind of the evolution of the kaiju battles as, that we'll see as the series progresses. But one of the things that I really enjoy about this one is how clever the choreography is in this the Subaraya and his team really figured out how to utilize each of the monster's strengths to piggyback off of one another so that they could actually defeat Ghidorah so you have stuff like Godzilla coming up behind Ghidorah and grabbing both of his tails so he can't move and Mothra tries to use her webbing to entrap Ghidorah but it's she can't aim it high enough so then Rodan figures out okay you get on my back and then I will fly up so you have a better angle with which to web up Ghidorah and then with Godzilla restraining him he's a Mothra is able to web him up so that he's immobile and can't really do anything I, I just it's a really great testament to what they were able to do especially on such a tight time frame it's a memorable monster battle with like i said with incredible choreography it's just it's it's a great step up from what we have seen before you know they were still figuring out how to up the ante so they do actually bring up nuclear things in this movie well one really like it's just they they toy with the idea of using nuclear weapons against the kaiju and they're basically like well yeah that's a really big decision <laughs> and they just like well the decide def- not to yeah the defense minister says do you want to be the guys who decide to use nuclear weapons on japan yeah i'm not and pushing the button i'll let you do yeah, yeah do you want to be those guys and the response is silence mm-hmm. so i th- I don't even remember if the defense minister says anything after that. I think they, I don't think they even come. Yeah, back to I don't. It. I don't think they come back to it. Just like silence. I mean, there's not even there's no music or anything, which I think is answer enough. It's a striking scene, honestly. Very much an expression of how Japan felt about things like that at the time. Oh yeah, definitely. Regarding the ending, Godzilla isn't defeated or killed in in this movie, so that's a a really big departure from all the previous ones, as opposed to him being. You know, encased in, you know, big piles of ice or... Or webbed up or yeah. shoved into the ocean yeah. or disintegrated with the oxygen destroyer, things like that. Yeah, instead he's the hero and he stays around. And mm-hmm. then uh, and nobody falls into the ocean in this one. 
No, <laughs> like we're, we're trying to keep we're trying to keep track of of, of the the falling into the ocean thing. Actually, and how often it's used. I think it's this is the first sequel where that doesn't happen at least once because it happens in the first fight and raids again. Mm-hmm. They both fall into the ocean. The, the then you have the weirdo semi controversial ending of King Kong versus Godzilla where they both fall in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Godzilla gets webbed up at, in the previous movie and falls in the ocean. Nobody falls in the ocean this time. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, like basically they the the four monsters fight. The three of them fend off Ghidorah, and Ghidorah retires from the battlefield, so to speak. <laughs> and then that's the end. And so it's a little bit little different ending in this one. I think that about wraps it up for part two. And now we can move on to our related topics. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we discuss an issue that is either brought up by the movie or was going on in Japan at the time the movie was released. So the related topics for this episode are China going nuclear, Japan during the Vietnam War, and Japan joining the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. First, we'll discuss China going nuclear. Which in this case uh, involves their first nuclear test, which was conducted... October 16th, 1964. Uh, The Chinese called it a 596. With this, China joined the A-bomb club, if you want to call it that, and became the fifth nuclear power behind the United States, the Soviet Union, France, and the United Kingdom. It became the first of 45 nuclear tests that they conducted on the same location, I might add, which was Lake Lopnur. The bomb that they detonated had a yield of 22 kilotons, which was as powerful as the Fat Man bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki by the United States in 1945, and as powerful as the Soviet Union's first nuclear bomb, which was detonated in 1949. China's nuclear program was actually started in uh, 1955 in, on January 15th. Its formation was prompted by several confrontations with the United States, most notably the Korean War, the Taiwan Straits Crisis, and the threat of nuclear blackmail. Uh, Specifically, nuclear blackmail involving Eisenhower threatening to use nuclear weapons during the Korean War. In 1956, Chairman Mao said, Now we're already stronger than we were in the past, and in the future we'll be even stronger than now. Not only are we going to have more airplanes and artillery, but also the atomic bomb. In today's world, if we don't want to be bullied, we have to have this thing. And so this goes towards the more uh, the reasons why China did this. And obviously, one major reason why any power wants to go nuclear is deterrence. Nuclear deterrence is extremely important to have, especially if you're a country that is a little, uh, well, on the paranoid side. But also if you're engaged in a Cold War in which you're just stockpiling these weapons up. Uh, But this was a little bit different than the dynamic of the Cold War. This was more so that China could deter the United States, but also because the Soviet Union ended their help of the nuclear program in China, this is also a way for China to say, we don't need you and we can we can build this ourselves. Yeah, because the the Soviets were actually helping them for a while there. They were exchanging scientists, even offering to give them a prototype bomb to study and all of that. But Mao made the Soviets nervous. He had a very 
nonchalant attitude toward nuclear war. As brutal as the Soviet Union was, they still had a healthy fear of a nuclear holocaust, which is one of the thing one of the reasons why the Cold War was a Cold War is because both the United States and the Soviets just weren't willing to shoot first. And that's what happens when you have nuclear proliferation occurring because, you know, eventually not all of the states that possess nuclear weapons are necessarily going to be as careful or as open to realization that things can get really bad really quick or that, you know, these weapons could fall into the wrong hands. Another reason a nation gets a nuclear program is national pride and to express their national will, so to speak. And that goes along with a lot of countries and China's definitely one of them because they Mao was able to get more support from his own people by doing this. So he's really shoring up the pro-communist party attitudes in his own country and by looking strong and saying, you know, literally, we're not going to be bullied by anybody. And so that there's that national pride aspect. Also, China thought that they should have just as much or more concentration of leadership as far as the communist revolution. In other words, they didn't want the Soviet Union to be the ones that are always dictating to the world what communism is and, and to join up with them. And instead, China was sort of saying, well, we're also in this. In fact, the Chinese designation for this project is actually was a way of kind of poking the Russians in the eye because... You know, it's called, it was called Project uh, 596, and it was so named because the project was started in June 1959, which was the month and year that First Secretary Nikita Khrushchev withdrew assistance to China. There was also some fear in the Chinese Communist Party about Taiwan possibly becoming nuclear with the help of the United States. And so that was another uh, another concern, because that would have almost been like a reverse... Cuban Missile Crisis of some sort, you know, like where it would be us setting up an island with nuclear weapons really close to China that would obviously trigger their national interest. Also, there was a lot of confrontation still between Chiang Kai-shek, led Taiwan, and uh, the Chinese communists. And so it was another way to really get an advantage in tactical nuclear weaponry. And being that Taiwan saw nuclear China as very much as an existential threat, they did after afterward attempt to start their own nuclear program, but it never really came to fruition. They even tried to start a, an anti-communist force to make strikes on to make strikes against China's nuclear facilities, none of which received support from the United States, probably for obvious reasons it would escalate the Cold War conflicts to a degree that I don't think the United States was prepared to deal with. Japan was very concerned about this development because it was, one, it was it showed that nuclear proliferation was occurring, which Japan is against nuclear proliferation, but also because China and Japan have had not very great relations, especially during the war, and so it's, uh, it's more of... They realized that China was flexing its military muscles and that they were becoming a larger player in world affairs. And so this was upsetting to a lot of the Japanese. 
The United States was aware of China's nuclear program and of the test, but they just chose not to intervene because they were obviously nervous about provoking communist China. If you're going to take care of a problem, you want to take care of it before somebody gets nukes, not after. The United States' real concern was that China would eventually develop more sophisticated weaponry, such as the H-bomb or ICBMs, which, by the way, were tested at the same site not long afterward, mostly because the Lop-Nur is the only nuclear test site that China has. This did spur... A lot, of t- uh, a lot of talks of non-proliferation between all of these nuclear powers because the United States wanted to avoid China escalating the Cold War and the nuclear arms race more than it already had. And it also prompted the Soviet Union and several other powers to sign the Treaty of Non-Proliferation in 1968. Thankfully, China has maintained a policy of no first use of its nuclear arsenal since this test, which... You know, given the you know the era in which this was going on, is very much a, a very much a good thing. You know, if anything good came out of this, it certainly helped both the United States and the Soviet Union to you know back down a little bit from their arms race because the tensions were certainly high at that time. Okay, so how does this possibly relate to this movie? Because we we have the the one book that we've been going back and forth about, saying that Rodan is the Soviet Union and you know Godzilla's America. This is that. This is that. East versus West and King Kong versus Godzilla. But with this, we have the possibility that King Ghidorah is uh, China and a new nuclear China. And there's been some back and forth between various writers and an opinion opinion people about this topic. I think it's quite possible that maybe there's, because that was going on right around the time this movie was released, there's maybe the, that was tapped into a little bit in the national psyche of Japan, but at the same time, there's nothing literal that I can really find about this. Certainly not literal, like you said. Right, because a dragon doesn't necessarily mean Chinese at all. You know, there's plenty of, of dragon connections in Japan and, and other countries too. And so it's not like China had some sort of monopoly on, on golden three-headed dragons. You know, this whole idea is still seems to be quite organically Japanese. And, and so because of this, it's like, okay, well, it, then what really literally in, in the movie does this, how does it reference that? And I, I don't know if it really, I don't know if it really does, but if just like, with Rodan, though, I mean, I, I guess you can just have a vague connection mm-hmm. and not necessarily some sort of super easy thing for the viewers to be like, oh, yeah, that's clearly China, you see, because, you know, I don't know if you necessarily need to do that in a movie. Certainly not. And I think the only the really the only major connection you could probably make is that, you know, just as you said, you know, this was obviously something that was probably on the Japanese psyche at the time. It's Ghidorah presents a you know this very powerful new you know almost overwhelming existential threat not only to japan but really to the world and that's really about the only sort of connection that i could make to it yeah another another threat which you got to just figure that for what you can i guess this is an interesting topic though because obviously japan has been very anti-nuclear proliferation and this is possibly i think the first time we've started talking about nuclear proliferation 
so far because we've finally gone to um, a fifth country. Next, let's discuss the Vietnam War and what kind of role Japan played in the Vietnam War. Now, right in 1964, what was going on was the Gulf of Tonkin incident in which the North Vietnamese fired upon uh, some of our naval vessels, and that prompted a big escalation in the American involvement in the Vietnam War. But not very many people know about just exactly what Japan's positions were and what effect the Vietnam War had on Japan. And so we'll kind of go into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, Japan was not directly involved in the war. They served as a launching point for the United States, most specifically with uh, the bases in Okinawa. Since Okinawa supposedly was not protected by either the Constitution of Japan or the United States, the Pentagon took advantage of this and stockpiled huge arsenals of chemical and, uh, chemical weapons and nuclear warheads. There were around 80 facilities on the island, making many of the Japanese feel that all of Okinawa was a base. And it also sparked a lot of sentiment in Japan about whether or not even this peripheral involvement with the war, this indirect involvement with the war, violated Article 9. Okinawa was really indispensable to the United States. I don't know if they, if we could have kept the Vietnam War really going if Okinawa had not been such a, had such a crucial role. In fact, in 1965, the commander of the U.S. Pacific Forces declared, without Okinawa, we couldn't continue fighting the Vietnam War. The concern in Japan was that because Okinawa had such a central role that at some point China could actually attack the bases in Okinawa if the Vietnam War became a larger conflict, which, because World War II wasn't really all that long away from this still, there was a lot of worry uh, about a World War III kind of scenario, and obviously that with the big strain of pacifism in Japan, they there are a lot of uh, pacifists who wanted to make sure that, that Japan was not pulled into something. Along with that, like in the United States, a lot of Japanese media was covering the war as it was going on, and the Americans' quagmire in, uh, in Vietnam reminded the Japanese of their own quagmire when they went to war with China 30 years before, and it really bolstered the anti-war sentiment that was going on at the time in Japan. And the international peace movement in general, there are a lot of peace protests uh, that were, it continued on uh, through the end of the Vietnam War with the intensity as far as uh, the anti-war uh, demonstrators. Yeah, the, the Japanese were very sympathetic toward the Vietnamese, especially as the Americans were escalating their, you know, their bombings of the country, especially because it reminded them of when the Americans were bombing their own country during World War II. During this time, there was a group that formed called the Bahirin, which was a coalition of hundreds of anti-war groups that had formed uh, during, uh, you know, during this time. Uh, it was also called the Citizens League for Peace in Vietnam. They claimed, among other things, to have actually helped 20 American soldiers who were deserters to actually escape from Vietnam and then find their way either into the Soviet Union or into Sweden. And they did this by getting them passports, among other things. They also, interestingly, bought shares of Mitsubishi so they could address the shareholders there about 
their company's involvement with you know in the manufacturing area giving supplies to the Americans and they also helped American soldiers publish and distribute underground papers and pamphlets uh, that were against the the war in Vietnam and that segues into economic issues because Japan even though Japan it, it became very much allied with the west they still wanted to be able to maintain trade uh, relationships with other countries in Asia and so there was at no point that Japan actually stopped trading with Vietnam during the war. And uh, part of this was, despite the Americans probably would have, would have probably preferred not to have that kind of arrangement. But again, that, that's Japan saying, okay, we, you know, this is involving trade with us. It isn't involving you. And so we need to continue our you know, trade relationships with whoever the uh, Vietnamese government is at the time. Um, and then this was Japan wanting to be more independent in this kind of decision-making. Despite all the downsides of the Vietnam War, Japan actually did do very well economically during that whole period. Which is one of the great ironies of this era, and I'm sure it contributed to the unease there probably was in, in Japan at the time, where there... They still have very much a pacifistic streak in them, and they're not fond of the war. They're worried about getting involved in another war, but they're also prospering because of the assistance that they're providing to the Americans. Just in 1964 alone, the economy of Japan, their GDP grew 11.6% just in that one year. And the, the whole 60s, as we referred to the golden 60s, Japan uh, prospered economically very well during this period. Japan always encouraged a settlement with the uh, with the North Vietnamese government, and they wanted to do it as soon as possible. Uh, to that end, they they actually established diplomatic relations with North Vietnam in 1973. However, the Vietnamese government demanded that the Japanese pay an equivalent of $45 million in World War II reparations, which the Japanese did do in two large payments. And then finally recognize. And then in 1975, Japan finally recognized the new communist government of the unified Vietnam and established a an embassy there in Hanoi. Well, I think that gives our listeners a bit more information about Vietnam you know, from the Japanese perspective because I don't know if that's really much of that information is out. You know, you sort of wonder because Japan was you know a lot closer to it than we were, and then of course you know about Okinawa. Our last topic is about Japan joining the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. This happened in 1964. The organization, which was started in 1961, is an association of democratically governed advanced market economies to foster cooperation and trade. Japan is, was the first country from East Asia to join the OECD. Uh, the group is known as a just a very selective group of countries, and so Japan joining the group made sense because they fell into this category. The organization fosters cooperation on economic, environmental, and social issues. This is just another indication, along with everything else that happened in, in 1964, of Japan joining the world community again and taking on more of a role in the international world. Yeah, Brian, I, I think... The, these last two episodes have shown that 1964 was not only an important year for Japan, but it was also an, an important year for Godzilla. You know, it's the only year where there were two Godzilla films, and you got 
easily one of you know the most popular of the sequels was produced here and then in an, another movie we had the introduction of easily Godzilla's most popular foe and his arch nemesis in Ghidorah and a lot of other really good films coming out in Japan uh, both kaiju and non-kaiju so it was it was a really good year for Japan and this was also about this time when I think the popularity of Godzilla as you know an international commodity you know an international piece of pop culture was really starting to take off as well yeah and we're warming up to eventually the golden year of uh, kaiju films which is in 1967 and that was our uh, peak of when every studio in japan released a kaiju film during that year and you were seeing them on television i mean they were everywhere well i think that about wraps up this episode our next episode will be 1965's invasion of astro monster a.k.a. Godzilla vs. Monster Zero. So I'm really looking forward to this one. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchant, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara! Sayonara!